Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with arrows in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting for over a decade. He has a laundry list of accomplishments. I'll give you a few. He's head of revenue for a venture-backed SaaS startup. He advises early-stage founders on building their first go-to-market teams. Super important. He's a product-led growth enthusiast, which I love. And he advocates for the deaf and hard of hearing. But why are we talking him today? Because... He is building the future of accessibility. Coming to us live from the greater Boston area, please welcome our disruptor, head of revenue at Ava, Anthony Franklin. Hello. We should say Anthony Franklin. Hello. <laughs> get the crowd noise going in the background. Yes, yes. Where are you in Boston? Yeah, I'm in Boston, Newton, uh, specifically, but got my little clan, married five kids, and loving life. So. That's fantastic. I was just there not too long ago. So let's get going. I want to talk about this future of accessibility. But before we do, I want to know, and our listeners always want to know, Anthony, what is your fundamental main ingredient for disruptive innovation? For me personally, it's a laser focus on our users, their problems, their concerns, and the solutions to where they came to us in the first place. So I, I think a lot of companies and a lot of products, frankly, just kind of go off a path of building cool features or features that someone somewhere might like, but they're not really focused on their specific user base and building exactly what they want. And I think it sounds kind of like the lame, easy answer. Everybody should be focused on the user, but it's actually very easy to get lost in what you could build versus what your target market actually wants you to build. And I found that that's led to a a ton of disruption in my personal life and in companies that I've advised. Okay, I'm going to ask you about this. But before we get to that, because I'm going to go off on a slight tangent, but I know you're a product-led growth enthusiast. That almost seems like an oxymoron based on what you just said. But it's really not. How is being a product-led growth enthusiast tie into really focusing on the problems of your target audience? And why is that so important? Yeah. So when we talk about product-led growth, and it's kind of a buzzword, the idea here is that instead of the traditional go-to market strategy where we send marketing materials that hopefully hit the right spot, we use our salespeople to persuade people We don't let them use the product until they pay us. And then we let them use the product. And then we have a customer success team that 
is very focused on, hey, let's have a lot of meetings and talk to you about how the product's working in your organization. Scratch all of that. Product-led growth is how can I use our product to be our marketing engine? Forget sending random things to people. How about we just let them use the product for free and they can decide whether this meets their needs or not? Can we use the product to be the salesperson? The product itself can give us a lot of the data we need so that we can actually forward and direct users to the problem that they started with in the first place. We believe every user starts with a problem. They don't care about us. They don't care about you or anyone. They want this problem solved. And that's all that really matters. So, and it goes down the line. Customer success is not just guessing and putting meetings on the calendar, but they're saying, hey, we see how you're using it. And here's some things that can help you get even more value and solve even more problems in your organization with our product. So it's a fundamental difference in how you go to market. It's thinking about our users and their problems and really crafting how we approach our customers with, can the product do this versus humans just doing this? And it all is kind of the underlying assumption is that sales has changed. People want to try it first. They don't want to talk to a salesperson or any human for that matter. Like they'd like to just try it. And that doesn't offend me. There's plenty of people that are willing to talk to us after they've tried the product because then it's not a guessing game. Now they know, I think this solves my problems, but I've got some questions about how we would implement this or how this feature works. It's just a fundamentally different conversation. So when I think about user focus, that's how it ties into product and growth. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I'm glad you explained that because it is a buzzword. It is fundamentally changing sales. Sales has changed. and letting people try the product first, I and mean, that changes how you sell everything. But it aligns even with the number one rule of branding is that you never talk about your solutions. You talk about the target audience's problems because mm-hmm. ultimately it has to fix that. Exactly. When you said that this has been disruptive, even in your personal life, tell me about that. Mm, I think there's a lot of ways been disruptive. So first of all, I think product-led growth is a buzzword, but it's an idea and a concept that great salespeople and great sales organizations have adopted a long time ago. I remember my mom used to go through Macy's and you know she always went through kind of the beauty section and I was I dreaded it. We'd always stop and take a long time. Mom, can we go? And, you know, they would always do the perfume thing where they would yeah. spurt you and kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, wow, I really like that, right? And they got very early on that forget the advertising. If I can get somebody to experience the product first, that's the best salesperson there is versus let's try to guess through a conversation, right? Like, let's get them into the product. and. For my own personal life, all the products that I buy, I try first from Netflix to, you know, whatever application before I buy it. I want to see that it's actually working, right? Even if it's a $5 app that I got to pay for, I want to get some kind of experience whether this is going to be useful. So I think the idea here is very much this has evolved to not just how we work in a store but very much how the whole go-to-market organization organizes itself. 
can we use product, product data, our solutions to really be a much better fit for our customers and help them reach conclusions much quicker. And I find that this speeds up sales processes. Once you get people to try it, they have some internal validation now that this is actually going to solve their problems. So certainly has changed my life, changed my kids' lives. My kids are very tech-friendly in video game world. Uh, having demos is very common. My son is on his Switch and has this Unreal demo. I don't know where he found it, but he did the little demo and he said, Dad, I'm going to love this game. You're <laughs> really going to love this game. No, I tried the demo and I saw him playing it for weeks and it was like, okay, let's download this game. I'm fine with paying for it because I know he's going to get a lot of value out of it. That's Again, fantastic. It really is. It does change everything, doesn't it? But even when you're relating it back to Macy's and what they figured out, I always avoid that because I hate getting sprayed on. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about how this goes into the future of accessibility. People are going, what does that mean? Let's lay out accessibility today. Yeah, when we talk about accessibility, we think about accessibility and and sort of what's happened even up till today. I think a lot of accessibility, it's been an idea, but then there's also been laws that have been introduced that have encouraged accessibility. I think about the 1990s, the American Disabilities Act came about and really sort of pushed reasonable accommodations. And this idea of people deserve reasonable accommodation so that they can do their work. But in other countries, maybe they take it even a a step further. I know in France, there are laws that require you to have X amount of disabled employees in your organization or you're fined. In today's world, though, the truth is you can have a company of 10,000 in the United States 10,000 employees, and not one has a disability. That's the truth. There's no required minimums. We put laws in place, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the world is accessible. And so in our role and what we build, we talk to deaf or hard of hearing users all of the time. Being deaf is not always something that you can tell. When someone's partially deaf, they can perhaps still read lips. When they have moderate to severe hearing loss, perhaps they can still follow along the meeting and get 60 to 70% of the information that was there, but it's disguised. And the way accessibility works today is, you know, an employee, a student, a patient needs to raise their hand. They need to disclose their disability. They need to ask someone else on the Zoom call to turn on their captions or a different captioning service, you know, Teams or Google, whatever. Or perhaps they need to really prove that they need this, right? They need to go get a doctor's note and all of this sort of thing and have some documentation. So that's the past of accessibility. It's actually, there's a stigma around getting an accommodation. A lot of people are afraid to say, I need this tool to be productive at work. And so they don't, and they just suffer and are not able to do great work they're able to do great work, but they, they work at a, almost with a tax on them. Every conversation, 60, 70, 80% they're getting. And if you do that for every conversation, how can you expect that employee to do great work? It's, it's very hard. 
So that's kind of where things have been. So that's one part of accessibility. The other part of accessibility is some people and other companies are very passionate about building accessibility, but they're doing it inside their walled garden. So some of the big players out there will say, hey, we have live captions if you come over to our platform. And you go, wait, what about in-person conversations? Can, can you help us have accessibility there? What about on the other platforms? Are you offering your technology and, and building that so that we can have those captions on every platform? And we find that there are not companies building tools that are accessible everywhere and in every situation that a deaf or hard of hearing person would go into. And again, deaf and hard of hearing is just who we're focused on now, but we have a vision to help every disabled employee, student, customer, patient, that they can go to any store and have the kind of communication needs that they have met. And that's a very ambitious... That's a big, big, big purpose. Disabled, I mean, let's... Let's just break that down, that population down. We have the intellectual, developmental, and disabilities, right? Hard of hearing. Gosh, there's probably so many yeah. that people aren't aware of. What percentage yeah. of the population are deaf and hard of hearing? Do we know? Yeah, yeah. So the estimate right now, there's some of the data collection has been a little fuzzy on this, but if we're talking about someone with any hearing loss, we're talking about 450 million people has some form of hearing loss. So where is this? In the US or globally? Globally. 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 Yeah, it has to be globally. I just looked at the number. Globally, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so we're, we're talking about maybe a twelfth of the population is suffering from some form of hearing loss. And often hearing loss, sometimes it can compound with other sort of disabilities. And again, most people kind of go to work not thinking about this community because a lot of times, either they're underemployed, so they're not really in my job because this employer has not really supported this group of people, or the people that do have hearing loss are hiding it for fear that they'll be looked at, they can't do their job or whatever, which is really unfortunate because this community is brilliant and smart and hardworking and has had to use a lot of technology tools their whole lives to to be productive. So, Which so is an asset. They're a bit more technologically advanced, for sure. I've heard, and I've actually seen it to be true, but, you know, you have to, when you have some perception that is lacking or gone, your other perceptions can get augmented to be able to survive and do well in life. And that's an actual benefit, too. So this is another kind of conversation about accessibility, like a lot of big tech revolutions were started either by or for deaf people. When we think about the telephone, when we think about the brain machine interface, when we think about the internet or text messaging, even our company, our CEO is a CODA, his mother, his father, his sister or deaf, our co-founder is deaf. We are coming from a space that we don't look at captions is just this thing that helps everyone, although it does. That's how accessibility works. You develop these tools, maybe for this community, but then all of a sudden everyone else benefits. And that's kind of the missing link in a lot of organizations is they're only thinking of perhaps the cost or perhaps who's going to manage this. And they're not thinking about how many other people in our organization 
are going to benefit from sort of our focus on accessibility and some of these other tools that we're introducing for this community. Well, let's break that down because that typically what is what <laughs> moves the needle, at least in the American business culture, is how it affects the bottom line. Things don't get changed, even though they need to be changed sure. until it's really exploited that it helps, right, the bottom line. And they look at the cost, but what are the benefits of others being able to utilize this technology? It's well-researched that if you have captions that you understand more of any conversation, there is an amount of your brain that needs to process language. And if it's not read, you're only getting it from hearing, which we know that when you hear information, it's not the best way to bring in information. You hear, but then you teach, you read, anything you can do to sort of add on some of those alternative methods of learning, it increases your understanding. So captions just in general help, I think, the general population. I mean, how many of us turn on subtitles? But again, I think it's incredibly important to see accessibility from the eyes of your user. Because when I think of captions, I think of, oh, great, we turned the captions on on my video conferencing platform. This is good enough. It's kind of inaccurate a little bit, but who cares? But for someone who's deaf or has severe hearing loss, I don't even know when the captions were wrong. So I'm sitting here thinking that I got this information and it was wrong. And I go into the next meeting with that wrong. And I add on a little bit more wrong. And I go to the next one. And all of a sudden, we haven't thought of captions from, again, the viewpoint of our users. And so that's what we're very focused on, is this community that has hearing loss. How can we create a platform that takes captions that everyone's sort of familiar with, but makes them highly accurate and allows them to understand not just captions, but who said what, when they said that review those captions after immediately after the meeting. That's where I think it's important for us to not just talk about accessibility in general, but I think it's important that accessibility is different in the eyes of the communities that you serve and the tools that you use. And it's very individualized. So that's kind of how we think about it. Very interesting. So you just started to foray into the innovation and the technology. How is and you've mentioned a little bit about how it's different. But let's get into that. How is this innovative? How is this disruptive? What's been done? I mean, you glossed upon it. It's way more accurate. How? How is that more accurate? Yeah. So generally, the industry, if we're talking about captions, they sort of fall into three categories. We have ASR, automatic speech recognition. This is what you turn on automatically on your YouTube video or your call like this or something like that. Inaccurate, probably 85% accurate, depends on how slow people speak. There's a heavy accent if multiple people are speaking over each other, right? Generally 85% on average. Fine for probably the everyday employee or student that doesn't have any hearing loss. They know, oh, it messed up there. Okay. Then you have sort of cart captioning which is like a courtroom stenographer used in many industries. They have a special phonetic keyboard. They type at the rate of speech. It takes about five years of training to keep up with the rate of speech. It actually can be very difficult. 
And because of that, there's sort of big prices associated with that. But generally, it's highly accurate, 96% accurate or so, maybe a little more. It can be very expensive price out of the market. Incredibly expensive, and it's limiting. I mean, sometimes you have to have the captioner right there with you. You can only use it on certain platforms, and they're usually 48-hour plus notice that you need to bring captions into a conversation, which we all know, if I want to schedule a meeting with you tomorrow, I need something much faster than that. And then there's a third category, which is what we are doing. So we're using automatic speech recognition as the base, which is about 85% accurate. Then we have live captioners that come into the conversation in real time, and they're real time correcting the transcript that you're seeing on your screen and bringing it up to 99% accuracy. So this is fundamentally different because this means you can have captions on your mobile phone, iOS or Android, you can have captions as a bar on any video conferencing platform. It means you can have captions in person just by bringing your phone to that conversation. It means you can caption podcasts like this one, YouTube videos, but again, they're all highly accurate. And because we have a team that we employ and deploy in sort of last minute situations if necessary, the deaf or hard of hearing person can come with confidence. They never have to be in a conversation where they're not really sure they're going to understand what's going on. They can come with confidence that I have equal communication needs being met, and I don't need to depend on someone else. I have my own platform to be able to do that. But most of the time, what we found is big organizations support this. They want to be inclusive. They want to have something like this. And I would say those are disruptors too. Not every company thinks of accessibility in this way. And the companies we partner with are very much thinking, how can I produce and create a more inclusive environment for this community? So that's a little bit about kind of how different it is. We translate into 16 languages, do a bunch of other stuff, but chiefly that's kind of what what we do. So you have ASR plus you have real life people. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this real-life people workforce, because that's a whole other subset of a workforce. What are their skills? Where do you find them? I mean, that's a lot of manpower. Yeah, it is a lot of manpower. A lot of places we find them. They need to have certain requirements for kind of words per minute. They need to have a certain tech savviness. They need to have a passion for accessibility and what we're doing. We give them some tests to confirm that they actually have those skills. But I think a lot of the people joining us are perhaps even maybe formally interpreters, right? Maybe they are formally word processing and, you know, they're coming saying, hey, this is the next sort of revolution and we, we want to join the journey. So we are scaling up. So there's sort of the before they join us and where do we find them and people can apply online if anyone's listening to this. We're growing our team. We're a series A startup. and very disruptive in how we work. But then even afterwards, we give a ton of training, but it's very unique training because again, it's using our platform. It's understanding, you know, the great thing about our scribes is it's not just typing. They're only doing the 15% or so that was incorrectly transcribed. So what that means is they can focus more on punctuation, capitalization, who said that, 
and really getting those nuances in the transcript live that perhaps maybe some of our competitors wouldn't be able to grab. And so, you know, we do a lot of training after, scoring, do some friendly competitions. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. Our scribe team is so important to kind of what we do for sure. Yeah, they're amazing. And they speak multiple languages. Yeah, well, some of them. We usually do, some of them do one language or two. They may be bilingual if they're doing from one language to another, but typically they're one language. Got it. And are you deploying all around the world? Are you in the we U.S. Are. right now? Okay. Yeah, we're in the U.S. and Canada. We have a team in Europe. So half of our company is based in France and half of our company is based here in the U.S., but currently have customers in the Middle East. We have the U.S., Canada, and France. So we support 16 languages. Those are our focus sort of areas, I would say, is Europe and and sort of U.S., Canada. Yeah, I get it. How did you get into this? First of all, before I ask you that, how do you test people for their passion about accessibility? It's somewhat subjective. Yeah. For us, if somebody's passionate about something, it bleeds through them. They talk about things they're passionate about. So they should be talking about this in the interview unprompted. They are invested, so they've done their research. Typically, great candidates for us are people who have downloaded AVA and tried it out and have said, hey, you know, wow, it was, it was this or it was that, or I tried it in my conversation with my mom, and it was crazy. It was captioning both of us, and it was kind of accurate, and they're giving feedback. Or they may even say, hey, you know, this happened, and there was a, a problem with this, right? It's, it's okay. We, we're open to that feedback any feedback that helps our users. Our CEO, Tipo, is very outspoken about this community and has done TED Talks and on the world stage talking about the deaf and hard of hearing community. So they'll have engaged with some of that. Again, we're not expecting people to worship at the, the altar of Ava yeah. here, right? But, but I think the idea is like when I'm passionate about something, I really am invested and I want to know more. And I've done a few steps that maybe show that I've invested. And I think it's that interest factor. You really can't fake interest. Someone is really interested, you can tell. Yeah, and some of our employees or scribes or other people on the team know American Sign Language or they have a a mom or brother, coworker that has hearing loss. And so they're like, yeah, I could really see how this could be valuable for them. So it's, it's really cool to see the team that's sort of gathering. Yes. Well, one thing I know about that community is that they definitely advocate for each other, for sure. How did you get into this? How did you get into advocating for deaf and hard of hearing? My career, I graduated from college and went into sales immediately and just individual contributors selling advertising and then started managing a team pretty quickly. And then I just got bored. It was kind of a, a place where, you know, there just didn't seem like there was a lot of upward motion kind of small company had been that way for a while and you know was looking for something different and m- my faith has always been a big part of my life uh, i think it energizes me i i think it helps give me perspective and and changes the way i approach management so 2014 started the senior pastor of a kind of mid-sized church and again that's been a big part of my life still is that was great it was a totally different experience it was much more of like the vision the goals for the organization, meeting with our board, and having to speak a few times a week, much more than I was speaking as a manager, for sure, a, a public 
kind of scale. But, you know, the thing I really appreciate about that role was you think differently when you're in the nonprofit world and you think about how to motivate people differently. I don't have a bunch of cash to throw at people. I want to know why they do what they do. And I want to know what they're intrinsically motivated by Mm -hmm. and tie that in to how they contribute to the organization. I left that role. I had twins, needed more money, well-paying job for sure. At that point, had had my five kids, right? So went back into sales. You're you're a little posse there, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm always a leader of my clan, at least. But anyway, then I went back into sales and uh, started managing teams again. And then I took a, a bit of a spin doing some consulting for a few years and still do some consulting, although it's very, very part time right now. Found when I was doing that full time, it wasn't as fulfilling in the sense of like I missed being involved in people's growth and being there day to day to see them grow. When you're an advisor, you're kind of just on the sides and advising the management team. It's, it's not the same type of fulfillment. So I was looking for a new role and that's how I came across Ava. They were kind of venture backed, high growth, but then social impact and not just like the buzz social impact, but like really actually helping users for the first time communicate with their waiter. And hey, you know, I can use Ava to actually order and show them and, oh, wow, I've never been able to do that as a deaf person. Or, wow, I I can finally have a back and forth with my manager and we can use the same platform and they can sort of communicate fluidly. It was like, wow, this is an amazing place. So, Anyway, so that's why I joined Ava and from my background and what you heard. It makes total sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Where do you see the future of accessibility in this particular sector? And, you know, what are the plans for Ava? So for for us, actually, just last week did a presentation on this at Closing the Gap, which was an assistive technology conference. But I think when we think about the future of accessibility, We are very much believers that it's autonomy, then accessibility. So when I provide tools, I have to be very careful that I am not making them come to me first and always come through me. I need to provide a tool that they can use when they feel they need it. It's not just something that I have to manage and they have to come to me first. I want them to feel flexible. And that's how we think. And that's why. Able was created, that that idea of autonomy, and I can use this when I want so that I still keep that autonomy, but I also have accessibility. We think the future is universal tools, so not just tools that are working in one section, but really thinking holistically about this community and kind of getting rid of these barriers that are artificial. And we need a lot more coordination, to be honest, if, if we're going to have an accessible future. It's hard. It's hard for a deaf or hard of hearing person to have one platform at work, one platform at home, and maybe two or three things that they need to do for this meeting and that meeting. And all of a sudden, they've got 10 tools. Makes their lives so complicated. Yeah. And, and then they need an extra set of tools to do their work. It's like there's such a tax that we've just got to get rid of kind of that thinking. You know, we think a lot more companies need to be thinking about business models that support the part of the community that can't pay for these things. So we have a free version and it's very strategic, 
that we want some of our proceeds and profits to be devoted towards a free, usable version where there may be people that are seniors, that they don't have revenue coming in, and how can we support them? So very much thinking from that perspective. Um, but it does expand it out, yes, because yeah, accessibility sure. is not just one sector of the population. There's many exactly. other sectors that we mentioned before, and elderly is another one. Yeah. yeah. So there was another question. I can't remember what the other one was. Where's Ava going? <laughs> oh, where's Ava going? Yeah. So our company was actually originally founded we were trying to solve this problem of even ASL and being able to deliver that in a very electronic way to make it very easy for anybody to get ASL interpretation, right? We did some work with gloves that do ASL and could kind of communicate this virtually, like the technology wasn't there. So we do sort of the captioning, but again, this is, this is like level one of the level 10 plan. For us, we're serving this segment because we know them very well, but we also know that our platform can be so much more useful to others, maybe those with dyslexia. Can we read these captions back to people? Can we use AI to distinguish speakers and who said something in the transcript automatically? We're already doing that for folks on the iOS, iPhone versions. We're thinking much more about how do we use technology, not just to benefit everyone, which we know there's companies doing that, but we really want to use technology to benefit the community that needs access to communication tools. And, and primarily, that's the, the disabled community. So we're, we're actively hiring. We've got a ton more growth ahead of us. We're laser focused, though, on helping our users and the universities, the organizations that we work with to deliver a great experience to the deaf and hard of hearing that are inside of their organization. So that's that's kind of how we think about things. That's awesome. And I love to hear universities and other corporations are really getting behind this. I think that's so needed. Let me just add here too, from that point, we also find that there's tools for school, tools for work. So you have to like use a different tool when you go to a new job. Or when you're in high school and you're deaf or hard of hearing, but we envision a future where you can take one platform and it stays with you wherever you go through that journey. So again, you always have the confidence that you have that tool wherever you go. There's a lot of confidence, isn't it? It's confidence, it's security, it's the ability to communicate and be part of the world. Communication is the universal solvent. So you guys are latched on to that. I love it. Anthony, what do you do outside of Ava? What are your crazy passions? Oh, crazy passions. Well, my crazy passions are my kids. Your five kids. Yeah, I've got five kids. I've got twin girls, five girls, girls. Got a rambunctious eight-year-old boy. Uh, I've got teenagers. So you've got the whole spectrum. We what's, do. What's yeah. one of your favorite family things to do with all your kids? Well, recently we went raspberry picking, and there's just the satisfaction you get from taking a raspberry off of the vine and hey this is where the food comes from and like wow that's how it grows and that's so cool and you that's know it's a different so- perspective for our technology born kids right it is it is, yeah. it is. Yeah. so we, we love doing that we're definitely a movie family we love watching our kids go to the YMCA locally and just kind of play and either basketball or whatever sport they're doing. So we we try to stay active, but it's a lot of fun just 
building the company, but also I think my family helps me sort of recharge and refresh. And I think that's important. That's awesome. Okay, Anthony, tell me how people get a hold of you. They want to talk about product-led growth. They want to talk to you about Ava. How do they get a hold of you? Yeah. So I think the best way to get a hold of me if you just want to talk product-led growth is just to hit me up on, on LinkedIn. You know, I think that's a great place and I check that definitely every day. So just hit me up on that. And that's linkedin.com slash in slash Anthony Franklin one. And, and just hit me up there. If you are interested in just making your environment more inclusive or possibly looking into Ava as one of the tools that produce a more inclusive environment, you know, reach out to me. My email address is anthony.franklin at ava.me. The ava.me throws people off, dot me. But would love to chat. And again, we think of accessibility as there's a lot of us that need to work together to make a more inclusive environment. And uh, we'll, we'll forge you the right way if we're not the people to help. Thank you. You know, I think this is great. It gave me a different perspective on accessibility. I know that that's a term people throw around, but seeing how technology is really helping, being the catalyst for this, starting with a certain segment of the population and seeing how it can exponentially expand. I love what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. No, it's been great being here and I'm I'm so grateful for, for the time here. You bet. All right, that's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show. Thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links. Do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.